Welcome to the Science of Performance. This is a new podcast in the Free Trail Network sponsored by Bow Technology. My name is Dan Feeney and I'm going to be your host. Just a little background on me before I can talk about all the interesting guests that we are going to have on this season. I did a PhD in neuromechanics from the University of Colorado Boulder and I spent the last five years building a biomechanics laboratory at Bow Technology. We work with most of the leading brands across the world, and we've tested a number of different pieces of footwear, everything from snowboarding boots, alpine ski boots, to trail running shoes. I want to take you into a lot of the learnings that I've learned over these last five years, exposing some of the nuances, some of the areas where the science is gray, and really challenging some of the assumptions that I think are out there. I'm really excited to have you on this journey, and please leave comments and thoughts as to what you liked and what you don't like. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Science of Performance podcast. I'm super excited because I have Valter Hochammer here. Walter and I overlapped at the University of Colorado Boulder a bunch of years ago, and Walter is, I would argue, pretty famous for being the lead author on the Nike 4% study. Um, maybe what you don't know is Walter has the widest range of any athlete I think we've had on this podcast. He's run uh, 48.6, if, if the internet serves me correctly, in the 400, and he's run 558 for a 50-miler. So incredible range. I can't fathom running under 50 seconds for a quarter, so uh, kudos to you. Valter is a professor at UMass Amherst, where he's doing a ton of really interesting research. And today we're really going to talk about the science behind what makes super shoes super, as well as some of the ways that you could take a super shoe on the road, which we understand fairly well, and bring those into track and trail. So thanks for coming on, Valter. Yeah, great. Thanks for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to talk about these things. Cool. So can we start with just talking about, you know, like I said, a lot of people probably know you from the 4% study or from some of the work you did on simulating how people could break two hours in the marathon. What is your lab working on now? Yeah, so when I started my own lab, we sort of kept in touch with all these things. So we do a bunch of footwear research um, and preliminary with Puma at this point. And, um, but we're also trying to better understand energetics of running in general. Um, so we're taking it up steep treadmills. And um, in addition to that, we also do a lot more sort of fundamental clinical research related to um, aging populations with fall risk um, and sort of um, helping gait rehabilitation improve, maybe using some smart footwear interventions. Um, so all of the above. Okay. Yeah, I think it's something that probably a lot of people don't realize the breadth of what you have to work on as an academic researcher. In addition to teaching classes, you're not just doing footwear research. Um, Definitely, yes. Yeah. So I, I think that, I, I mean, part of me would, would like to, to just do footwear research uh, and, and do running science. Uh, but um, at the same time, um, it's, it's just running science and uh, particularly the funding side of things is interesting. Like I would like to have grad students who are supported by funding. So um, we, we try to do meaningful research that is actually um, fundable. And uh, so that's where we, we, we managed to sort of bridge the two. And uh, particularly with these current projects where we're really um, using some of my footwear background from running and applying it to rehabilitation, but also the, the fall risk. Um, it, it has some overlap with the trail running, with, with the way we measure things and things like that. So there's, I always try to find the overlaps to keep it exciting, but at the same time, we, we do have, um, yeah, 
as a research institution, we can't just run, study things that we like. Um, it has to be relevant too, right? Yeah. No, I think that breadth is what's really interesting, and it probably helps you on both ends of the spectrum, whether you're taking those findings back into running um, or back into a, maybe a clinical population. So let's just get started by talking about sort of the elephant in the room, which was the Nike 4% study. Um, it was obviously groundbreaking. It's really changed how most of the shoes that people wear during marathons look, feel, et cetera. Um, can you talk about, you know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions around the 4%. What does the 4% mean? Why is energetic expenditure so difficult to measure? Um, if we could start there. Yeah, so... so Basically, um, that study um, was looking into energy expenditure, like you call it. So we basically measure how much energy it takes a person to run at a set speed. And uh, we do that because we can control the speed very easily. And uh, the alternative would be to have a bunch of shoes and have people run a marathon in. And then after they finish, they give another pair of shoes and like ask them to run another marathon, um, which obviously is not really feasible. But even if you do shorter time trials, it, it gets a little tricky. Um, so because of pacing, because of wind training, whatever. So it, it's nice to be able to compare the same shoe within the same day on one person. And uh, the easiest way to do that is to have them run uh, at a sub maximal intensity and control that speed and then measure how much oxygen or energy they're using. And that's basically the, our outcome measure of choice. And we uh, measure that in 18 runners on three different days at three different speeds. And uh, we measured um, their energy uptake, and we saw that in these new prototype shoes, it was 4% less. So they're 4%, using 4% less energy. And then obviously, um, there was a lot of advertising going on around that finding where um, the easiest conclusion was to say these shoes are 4% faster. And I guess that's where, where you were going with your question, is, and, and that's not necessarily true. Um, so if you use 4% less energy, it doesn't mean that you can now all of a sudden run 4% faster. Um, it's actually a lot more complicated than that. Um, but, but the short version is that um, because... Uh, it's not a proportional, direct, directly proportional relationship that doesn't necessarily hold. So it kind of depends on how fast you go. And when you run in the lab, we measured its oxygen uptake on a treadmill. There's no air resistance. Um, and when you run over ground in a race, there is some air resistance. And uh, it depends on how fast you're going uh, and that how that relates into how much you're going to be able to run faster with those 4%. Um, and then the other thing is that that 4% is an average across the group, uh, which doesn't mean that every single individual will get those 4% metabolic savings um, and then let alone run 4% faster. So that's sort of the, the, the fast version of that. Yeah. Well, and, and you and Shalaya and a few other people in the lab did a pretty interesting study where you actually had people run time trials. And granted, you you altered the mass of footwear, and I think you tricked people a little bit. Could you maybe talk about that and one way that you guys tried to link the metabolic savings you see in the lab to actual time trial performance? Yeah, that was a an, an very cool, interesting study that sort of led the way into all of this breaking to um, research and, and extrapolation. So basically... Um, you kind of like have the goal, like the, the world record was like 202.57, and the goal was to run three minutes faster. So how much energy should the runner save to accomplish that? And, um, and then again, it comes back to like, well, if we want to run, 
let's say, 2% faster, how much metabolic savings do we need? And initially, um, we thought, oh, yeah, that, that's just two, right? It, it's a linear relationship, and why would it be different? So that's how we sort of set out to that. But then we're like, well, let's see if we can actually confirm this with some data. Um, and at that point, we, we did an, an interesting study where uh, we were we were not able to make people run faster at the time, or maybe Nike was already, but uh, they didn't share those sh prototype shoes yet. So the easiest way to was um, bas basically have people walk sl uh, run slower. So uh, we gave them shoes that were heavier. Um, so we had a control shoe, and um, Nike did a good job at making two additional models in the same size, and we had a bunch of different sizes, but. Um, Basically, we added 100 grams and 300 grams, but the outside of the shoe looked exactly the same. The, the weight was with lab BB sort of soon into it. Um, and um, then the biggest uh, deception, deception was that we, we didn't tell the runners what we were even studying. So um, the runners had no idea that we were even wearing running uh, different shoes. They thought they were there to do a study on the relationship between VO2 max, oxygen uptake, and running performance and the reliability of running performance. Like if you do a time trial um, once and if you do it again, how similar are they? Um, so. That study involved one, we started out with the time trials, um, and a week apart, people came in, into uh, the indoor facility and did a 3K time trial. And then one week, we gave them the one shoe, and then the other week, we gave them the shoes that were 100 grams heavier. Obviously, we didn't tell them. Um, they were just there like, hey, you need to do a time trial, and we just want to make sure that you run in the same shoes. So here are the shoes you saw last week, and uh, we gave them, but it weren't the actual same shoes. They were slightly heavier or uh, even 300 grams heavier. Um, and then the other thing is obviously when a person uh, has a shoe in their hand, they're pretty good at picking up that weight. Um, so we... Um, we actually had to prevent that, so we then had to come up with another deception where we said, well, um, here is this small accelerometer uh, measurement unit that we also need to play that needs to be exactly on your second metatarsal bone, sort of halfway. So the researcher would place that fake uh, accelerometer on their foot. Um, and then it's like, okay, let me put your sock over it and make sure it's still in place. And let me put your shoe over it and make sure it's still in place. Um, and then at that point, we had managed to put the shoes on the feet of the runners and they hadn't touched it with their hands. And then super intriguingly also is that actually people are not very capable at perceiving shoe mass when it's on their feet and your hands is really easy. On your feet, uh, not so much. Uh, and that, combined with the fact that they didn't even know we were studying shoes, um, caused that nobody picked up on that. So we were able to have people do time trials in different shoes of different mass, and they had no clue that they were doing that particularly. So they did that, and we had the time trial, and again, we basically saw that for every 100 grams that we added, uh, people ran a, about 0.7% slower. Now, that was one thing. On the other side, we kind of knew, and that's why we went with Shum, is that for every 100 grams that you add, uh, people use about 1% more energy. 
Um, after we did the time trials, we actually reconfirmed that with the same shoes and the same people. But at that point, it was one visit in the lab, and they do one trial in one shoe, and then we ask them, like, hey, can you stop? There's something with your shoe, let me, and then you try to switch shoes behind your back. Um, so that didn't always work. So at that point in the lab, people were aware that maybe they were running in different shoes. Uh, but again, this was after they did the time trials, and in the lab, we were less concerned about that, uh, mainly because we feel like, well, if you know you're going to do a time trial and you know, like, the research is like, hey, today's the heavy shoes, you might run a little slower versus if you're in the lab, running at the set speed and the researchers measure oxygen uptake, energy consumption, knowing that the shoe is heavier is, is most likely not going to affect that. Um, so again, we did that part of the study and we confirmed for every 100 grams, people were using about 1.1% more energy. So basically, if you combine the two parts of the study, we see that adding this 100 grams, people use about 1.1% more energy but they only slow down 0.7%. So that's not a one-to-one -one relationship, right? Uh, interestingly enough, at that point, we didn't even believe our data that much, and we were like, well, that's close enough. Um, it's about the same. Uh, and uh, we started sort of taking that to the next level, and then um, obviously it didn't sit well with me, and, and we thought about it more, and then we thought about what goes into this, and a couple of years later, then we wrote a theoretical follow-up paper where we sort of uh, went back to the, the, the theory and sort of came up with the relationship, and we basically take into account air resistance and other things, and there we see that it's speed-dependent, and um, indeed, it's most often, it's slightly less. So for 1% metabolic savings, you, you get about two-thirds of a percent benefits. And um, it's funny because we used then, we developed the model, then we applied it to our own findings from a couple of years before, and it fit that model really well. So that was pretty uh, exciting to see as well. Yeah, that <clears throat> I think it's super interesting. And having, I, I believe I'm allowed to say this, been a part of a number of these different studies as a subject, I can certainly corroborate with what Valter's saying that in the 4% study, they did a lot that they could to make sure that you weren't aware of the differences. Um, and then I've tried these different mass shoes on. And that's one of the biggest challenges in footwear is blinding people. One of the things I'd like to talk about next, you know, to your point, a lot of people see 4%. They say, well, probably 4% faster. And you, as a researcher in this field, even struggled to make that leap that it's different. The next reason is why. And in another episode of this podcast, people are going to hear from um, Eric Honert and Emily Mativich. And I would say those two are like the gurus of dynamics of movement. We talk a lot about joint torques and joint powers. Could you talk a little bit about what you think the Nike 4% shoe specifically, and you can talk about mass as well, is doing to the joint powers? Because you know the metabolic energy, as I think about it, is going to be sort of a summation of everything that's going on physiologically in your body. If you have to do less work to move at a certain speed, that should get picked up by the metabolic energy. But as you sort of alluded to, it's a pretty noisy measurement. So let's start by talking about what does the 4% shoe and what do these sort of super shoes do um, to your body at the more joint level, the biomechanics level? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. So I think the um, I fully agree with what you were saying. I think it's even a layer onto that because... Um, even at the joint level, we see sometimes that there is some negative work and then some positive work, and, and we don't know if that is 
actively absorbed work and then actively produced work, or that that is just a tendon that is uh, basically storing that energy and then returning that energy. So I think um, that's sort of one of the bigger problems why basically my answer to your question is we don't know exactly what is going on. And um, so we have particularly followed up our study where we compared the, the Vaporfly shoe prototype against uh, the Nike Streak and Adidas Boost 2, which were at that time the, the two dominant marathon racing flats. And that was a particular comparison. And we saw that 4% savings, and then we followed up with some biomechanical analysis. And we there saw that basically we anticipated some changes at the knees where because it was such a bulky shoe i mean in hindsight it was bulky it's 2023 now if i look out it, it doesn't even strike me it, it, the prototype is behind me somewhere it, it even looks um, not that bulky but back then it, it, it was bulky and thick and and we thought that well if you add all that foam in a midsole and uh, it's more compliant, more resilient, you get some of the bounds um, that normally gets from your knees or your ankles, um, you get that from the shoe. And based on some earlier work at the bouncing treadmill, we sort of anticipated that um, that bouncing would result in less knee movements and you basically can run around with straight knees a little more. Um, and, and that was how we went into that study. Now, to our surprise, when we closely looked at the data, um, we saw that that was not the case. So people running in these shoes um, at the level of the hip and the knee, there weren't many changes or measurable changes. Uh, but we did see some changes at the ankle and obviously at the MTP joint. So the MTP joint is your metatarsal phalangeal joint, basically between your midfoot and your toes. And that we saw changes there does make a lot of sense because that's where uh, the shoes have this carbon fiber plate. Um, so if you walk or run barefoot, you can flex your toes back during that push off and uh, a plate in there would probably prevent that, right? So that's kind of what we saw. Um, a little bit changed at the ankle, mainly at the MTP joint. Um, and the interesting thing is that the MTP joint, is, it's, it's a very proximal joint, it's, it's very tiny, like you would imagine that if you have a big change at your hip, that's going to affect your whole body energetics a lot more than a tiny change at those foot muscles, right? So even there, we, while we quantified the joint energetics, um, we still don't necessarily can translate that all the way up to like, okay, this adds clearly up to 4%, and again, it's... And that's kind of the cool part about being a biomechanist and a physiologist. Like, um, it's, it's not that straightforward. And again, we see that some muscles or there are some joint moments or joint powers that are less. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the muscles produce less force or maybe the muscles are doing that force while lengthening and then they use less energy when they produce that same force while shortening. Um, so again, we, we need another layer on top of the joint powers to see what's actually happening to the muscle fascicles that are the ones that produce the forces and use the energy. Um, and so and basically that's sort of my answer to saying like, we still don't know exactly what is going on, but, but from that study we could at least exclude a couple of different things. Um, and uh, for instance, it's not the knee. Um, right. And, and, and the plate does something at the M2P joint. Um, so is the play the spring? Um, that, that's sort of the, the, the question that we could try to answer with those findings. 
Yeah, I think you put it really nicely. And I remember talking with you shortly after you guys finished that follow-up study, and you were pretty dubious that just changing the MTP joint uh, energetics could cause a full-body 4% reduction in energetic cost. And I agree with you. Um, That being said, I think a number of people, probably more in the mass media, it's a simple story. And I hear that repeated so frequently. Wow, well, there's this carbon fiber plate that's making it so I don't lose this energy at the MTP joint. And that's why I run 4% faster, which we know is also not the case. Could you talk a little bit about the attributes of the shoe and what based on some of the follow-up research that you've done and you've worked with Laura Haley and a number of people out of your lab to, to try to figure out what parts of these shoes are causing those improvements. And then maybe we'll get into how those might be applied to trail shoes. Yeah, so so that, uh, again, is still a question that we don't fully understand. We're still trying to get at. And it becomes more and more interesting. Um, I think leading up to this study and, and going into sort of probably what had happened happened in the Nike lab when they developed the shoes is sort of like I just talked to you about our mass shoe mass study right so we we know that for every 100 grams that you make a shoe less heavy you can save about one percent of energy um, so innovation until basically 2012 was make the shoes as light as possible and then the other thing is uh, we did know that um, if you run barefoot versus if you run on a soft midsole, you can save a little bit of energy. Um, but then that is so minimal with, again, going back to the EVA shoes that people were using in the those 90s and early 2000s. Um, yeah, making adding a shoe, uh, making it a little softer saves you some energy, but you add some mass and it usually equals out so still at that time it was like let's make it as as light as possible because and and people were making more plushy shoes like hokas and stuff um, but not they they all of a sudden got bulky and heavy and maybe were not the racing flats right (laughs) um so so we got two things we got shoe mass and we got we know that cushioning could help but usually it's too heavy to actually be a net benefit and then uh, another sort of thing that went into that um, shoe was this carbon fiber plate, which you just mentioned. And um, basically, and there were some early early studies that showed that just adding some stiffness and limiting that MTP joint movement could save you maybe about a percent of energy. Um, so, so those are sort of the, the biggest things. And then in addition to that is then around that time the PBA foams came out and those weren't only soft they were also more resilient so basically we went a little bit more from uh, a cushion um, like pillow midsole to a trampoline midsole right on that spectrum Um, not that extreme but that's sort of what more resilient means we get more energy back Um, so those are the things that go in there Uh, now overall the shoes with adding a plate didn't get much lighter um, so mass is, wasn't the biggest thing. And actually, in our study, we controlled for the mass. So we made sure that all the shoes were the same mass. So our 4% metabolics findings were basically only on a thicker midsole with a plate in there. And the midsole was more resilient and softer. So, th- so, And then the thicker midsole also allowed for a change in geometry, maybe a more aggressive toe rocker where you can roll over quicker or something. So those are the elements that have to explain this, right? But then... How do they all interact and how do they translate to actually a muscle fiber shortening with either less force or at least less energy? Um, And that still is a big puzzle. And we have looked into this. I think the one study with the joint mechanics that we just talked about sort of indicated that 
first of all, the plate does work as a spring. I'm not going to deny that, but we could put a number on it. And what we saw was that the plate in bending as a spring um, just stores and returns a very small amount of energy. It does do that. So yes, it is functioning as a, a spring if you want. But if you compare that to how much energy you can store by just landing on the PIBA midsole and bouncing back, that amount of energy there is 50 times higher. So if you want to talk about some springiness of the shoe, it has to be about the midsole. Uh, and I don't that, think that can be said enough, right? Like, I, I think yes. everybody in my mind, they, they see a carbon fiber plate. Like, that's number one thing. You go to the track, you're someone, hey, I've got a carbon shoe. And I always try to say, well, what kind of foam? And, you know, you talked about PBAC, so polyethylene block amide. That's this this new foam. We had EVA, which was 90s and knots, And we had a little bit of TPU um, that was like the Adidas boost. And so just to kind of catch everyone up, I agree with you. I think this has been the number one almost head fake of, hey, the carbon fiber plate's important, but I don't think it's the magic that people think, much like the MTP joint isn't maybe where all the magic's happening. So I just want to highlight that point. Please keep continue. Yeah, no, I think that's a very important highlight, and um, it can be said enough. And I think that sort of um, goes into um, sort of the next phase of the studies where we were trying to sort of tell sort of like that applies and we were like well if this plate is is doing a little bit of that um so we asked like can we get the exact same shoe piba midsole same geometry just leave the plate out and they were like no <laughs> um <laughs> we probably looked at that uh, internally but they didn't want the, the the scientists to to look at that and publish that and share that knowledge with everybody um so then eventually what we came up with was um we just bought shoes from the store, the actual Nike Vaporfly 4%, and then um, after trying to get the plate out without destroying it, it wasn't really possible, so we came up with the sort of the second best um, option in my perspective, which was um, we took the, the, the shoes to a table saw and we just made a couple of slices and cut through the plate, through the midsole, um, sort of uh, from left to right, so that now the shoe has the exact same foam, the exact same dimensions, geometry, but because we cut the plate at six different places, now you could just flex that shoe really easily. So we It's like a Nike-free 4%. Basically, yes. Um, so importantly, we, we, the plate was still in there, but it was just cut into smaller pieces. Um, and then uh, we were like, well, if this plate is so important in this shoe innovation, then or at least if the if the spring function or the bending stiffness of the plate is so important, then by cutting it, um, that shoe should perform a lot worse than the intact shoe. So we did that study. Uh, again, we have people coming to the lab. We measure their oxygen uptake and energy consumption while they run at a set speed. And to our, uh, well, not to my surprise per se, but uh, overall pretty much surprising to most people was that if you cut the plate, um, we didn't see a significant reduction in energy cost. Um, I think overall it was about half percent lower, and again, it was not significant, um, which basically suggests again, like, no, the plate is not the biggest part of that 4%. It's, it's most likely the foam, because um, that's still there. Um, so, so that's where we, I think, still currently are. I think the other thing that's 
getting tricky now at this point, like 2023, there's so many more competitive brands on the market. And even scientists that try to do controlled studies, they were like, okay, let's, let's take a shoe and put a plate in and put the plate out. The easiest way to do that is put a carbon fiber insole in that shoe. And um, then they're trying to explain the 4% savings, but just putting a carbon fiber plate insole in that shoe doesn't give you 4% metabolic savings. So I think that's, that's where our field is a little um, off, where we're trying to find out what this plate is doing, but we put in a different plate on a different place. Um, mm -hmm. So combining all that knowledge, again, for us, has been sort of indicative that looking into that, again, the plate by itself doesn't seem to do much. Um, but if you put it on the right place, it's in that shoe, it's in most of the super shoes. So you probably can't go without it, but it might not be because it's, uh, it's springy or that it's, it's stiffening and, and acting all around the MTP joint. Yeah, I've kind of had this hypothesis that if you think of the rollover shape of the foot, maybe what the plate and the geometry you're doing is it, it's sort of optimizing that rollover shape for the P-backs or the really highly resilient compliant trampoline-like midsole. And I think an interesting two sets of shoes that are on the market Ultra, when they first released their super shoe, they just had a four-foot plate. And I saw some test numbers, and people were still getting some pretty solid savings over you know, a baseline shoe, which made me think, okay, so it's not full-foot um, plate that's making the difference. And I think the people that saw that and they thought the whole differences at the MTP joint maybe were celebrating for a bit. Um, on the flip side, I think even the... For example, the Nike Invincible that just has the P-backs foam, but a different geometry and no plate. I've even seen some studies, I think, down uh, out of Austin. I'm blanking on the guy's name. He's seen some improvements in that shoe relative to former racing shoes. So, like, I've always thought if I, if I didn't have a plate, I could maybe still get 3% out of foam and geometry. And maybe that's really relevant in the trail space. I know you've done a little bit of work about translating these into the trail space. Could you maybe talk about where you've gone, whatever you can share. I, I know some of it might be proprietary. Yeah, so I guess that that's um, definitely interesting. And then my, my question to you is like, so wh why would you leave the plate out, right? So, and I guess there's, well, you can answer that if you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I more so just because so many people, I think their mind goes to the plates causing it. And so I'm saying, I, I think I could actually get a lot of the way there with that one. That being said, it's still important. It's still an ingredient. I just don't think it's the most important ingredient. And then when I think of a trail shoe, or if I think about if I wanted to make something for maybe positions where uh, fit or just like off-camber nature of trails becomes more important, that would be the first thing to go. Exactly. I think that that is an important thing to highlight. Um, yeah, I, I don't necessarily have a lot that I can share that we have done systematically enough that I would be comfortable even sharing. Uh, but I fully agree with your uh, sort of observation. I think what we're trying, have been trying to do and uh, so far have not been able to do is to sort of show like, hey, if you go steep uphill and it's steep enough, just from looking at people running up steep hills, your MTP joint needs that flexion to get your whole forefoot in contact with the surface. Um, and from that idea, we were like, okay, at some point, um, this plate is not going to be helpful. So we have done a couple of studies. So we started with the Vaporfly study was on the level, right? So road running works well. Then we did shallow incline up 
three degrees, which is about 5%. And um, uh, Ian Hunter, did, this group, did a similar study uh, with a similar grade. Uh, and basically, both show that with, with this Vaporfly shoe, they still work uphill, but you might not get the full 4%. You might only get 3%. So the benefits are starting to get smaller with uphill. Um, then we did a study with the master students in my lab where we had people go up to something as steep as around 20%. And at that point, we didn't see differences anymore. So we didn't see a benefit. But still, I had expected that at some point the plate was going to be worse. Mm -hmm. um, so now we have a very steep treble in our lab, and we're trying to do this study where um, we go even steeper than that and up to, like, we have it at 30 degrees, which basically is... 57%. So this is something that you wouldn't even come across outside on the trails. And if you do, it's probably steps and stairs. So it, it might not be fully relevant. Um, but um, we don't have much data on that yet. But um, I just can't imagine that we won't see that the plate is actually worse. Because again, you're at that grade, your foot needs to do that. Um, so um, so that's where we're going with there on the plate. Um, again, I agree with you, camber um, or even just stepping on a single rock. If, if you don't have a plate, your shoe probably allows you to deal with that better than when you have a stiff plate in there. Um, so then the question is, can we leverage just the geometry and the foam to improve trail footwear? And I think that's also challenging um, and, and mainly in my perspective because like the these road shoes are made for roads and roads are really rigid um and trails might not always be that rigid um so it's going to be interesting to see and because trails around the world are so different um as you know i was just in colorado which was nice to run trails in colorado again because here on the east coast they're a lot different um so even thinking about shoes yeah you might need uh a softer shoe on a firmer slick rock trail in Utah, which is where I also was, um, versus uh, a bouncy, wet, um, muddy trail in in Scotland or wherever, right? So I yeah. think that 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 becomes interesting because now the the midsole needs to act with the the surface properties a lot more than on the road, which we assume to be rigid most often. Right. And, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, I know there are some groups like Carbotex. They, from what I understand, I haven't done a lot of testing in them, but they have some carbon fiber insoles that I believe they're sort of viscoelastic and they, they have certain levels where they might flex in one direction versus the other. So I think some groups are trying to get about doing that into a trail shoe. That being said, again, if a lot of it comes from the midsole outsole, so related to that, there is sort of a big controversy, and it's always good when your research can produce a controversy, right? Um, because there was a lot of, we should ban shoes, we should ban this and that. And to me, this was a, a little bit of a slippery slope ar argument to one of the studies that had been done in Crum's lab, uh, Roger Crum's lab, a long time ago about people even respond differently to different levels of cushion. So no matter what you put on people's feet, there's going to be a differential reaction. And Nick Tam and a few other people proposed limiting the stack height as well as a few other variables as something the IAAF could do in competition. And if I remember correctly, you kind of opposed that. And I wonder if you could talk through why you think just limiting the stack height um, wasn't the best way to go forward. 
Yeah, I think that mainly came out of my own interest in innovation and, and not trying to limit any innovation. Um, but basically, the main argument in paper that I'm trying to make is sort of, it's sort of self-regulating. Um, uh, but I mean, more recently, I, I thought about this recently, and I thought maybe, and this is a side note, but people always talk about technological doping, right? And and I always say like, well, it's not illegal in the rules, and the the reason why some of the drugs are considered illegal and doping is because they're also not healthy, right? Um, so. Uh, but then going back to the shoes, uh, so first of all, it's not mechanical doping because they're allowed. Um, and, and secondly, if you would not allow them, um, generally that's different because it's bec you want to limit innovation or you want to keep the, the playing field level versus it's not necessarily dangerous to athletes. But right. this this hide argument that what I was trying to make and saying like well stechide is somewhat self-regulating because if you just make your shoes taller and taller at some point um, they're gonna be unstable and people are gonna roll their ankle all the time uh, which at that point they become dangerous to the athlete so maybe from that perspective it could be a good reason uh, to limit it I mean at this point they are limited at a specific arbitrary thickness um, and we haven't seen a lot of ankle rolls uh, with them um, uh, so we're probably below that level but I was sort of making the argument just again purely on um, the effect of stechide on running economy is kind of unknown and there was the argument was made based on biological across the animal kingdom animals with longer legs are more efficient we actually have uh, there's both in my lab and and um, um, Zach Behrens, who is now a postdoc in my lab, but actually did his PhD work in, in Calgary with Darren Stefanician. Um, and he published his work just recently on stechide and showed that there is no benefit. Like if you have a 35 millimeter shoe or a 60, uh, the metabolic cost is not better. Um, and our data shows that if anything, it's even worse. Uh, and particularly what we did, we in our study, we, we used a firm foam just to really get that, that idea of like, just stack height, giving people longer legs, is that going to mm -hmm. help? And um, it's not. Um, but if you make your f midsole thick from a fancy foam, um, then it's not worse, um, but also not better. So, um, again, the argument to me is like, if you just, you don't need to put a rule on it because it, it's a self-limiting concept. Like at some point they're going to be too high where they either get too heavy, too clunky, and people are going to roll their ankles. Um, so, and, and that's not even the reason why it's better. It's not because of stack heights. It's because of the foam and the, the plate geometry and everything in there. Um, but and I've never seen somebody run fast in stilts, you know, so like yeah, exactly uh, on the flip side, when you think of um, prostheses in, in track running, there is a limit to how tall you can make them. And so in my mind, that was where I thought a lot of these ideas came from was like, man, I don't want somebody 10 feet tall. My PhD being more in like the muscle side of things, I always just assumed you would, you'd really inhibit coordination too. probably at some point. If I suddenly was running with hundred centimeter high shoes, I probably am so uncoordinated. Maybe I could get used to it, but I don't know. Um, so yeah, do you do you think like there is any trickleover between sprinting prostheses and this? Yeah, well, the, the sprinting prosthesis debate is, is is not fully settled on its own by that, but I think 
I am a big proponent of there's no such thing as free lunch, right? So people can talk like, oh, if you make people's legs longer, they get a, f- a longer step length for free. And I was like, well, no, you get a longer step length. But then when you're on the ground, you still need to go and drag your whole body over your longer leg. So you would need more hip uh, power and hip forces to do that. Um, so again, even with something as, as a couple of millimeters on a midsole, um, yes, you get a tiny longer leg, but you don't necessarily get a longer step length for free because when you're on the ground, you have to move your leg over it um, or your body over it. So mechanically speaking, I never really believed that argument. Um, and then for the prosthetics, um, not fully up to date on the latest finding, but I do know that there's big debates and even they go to court on these debates and <laughs> have the scientists um, uh, present their cases on how they interpret the data on this as well, where um, again, um, the prosthesis might be lighter um, and easier to swing, but um, they can't generate any power actively. Um, so again, just by itself, longer isn't always better. Um, and um, I guess that's where I should park uh, that argument uh, for the prosthetics, because I, I don't want to upset anybody uh, without reading their study more carefully. Yeah, I don't want to go over to court over this first podcast I've ever done. <laughs> um, I think kind of touching back on taking these super shoes, applying it to the trail, um, I think there's a paper that I'd love to talk about a little bit about like sort of the applying the cost of generating force hypothesis to uphill running. Could you maybe talk just what is the cost of generating force hypothesis sort of in, in a simple term? And then why is it different when we think about uphill running? You know, having just last week the v, the World Mountain Running Championships, VK, et cetera, saw a lot of people actually wearing the road super shoes, at least for the VK. So I think there is a lot of interest in, in understanding where these shoes might have a play there. Yeah, no, that's an excellent uh, observation. And uh, so, so the interesting part about the paper that I did on the uphill running was particularly um, for um, trying to better understand what determines the energy cost of running, right? Because if we know what determines the energy of cost of running, we can start modulating it. And for level running, we always had, well, not always, but since the 90s, we had a pretty good understanding that uh, it's related to the cost of generating force, which basically means that going back to something what I said earlier is that um, if we run um, and we can quantify uh, work um, done at different joints, um, we, we, we don't always know whether that work is absorbed or stored and whether that work is returned or generated. And um, an easy bypass to that whole situation was uh, done by a study by Roger Crum and, and, and Taylor, uh, where they basically um, just looked at, like, well, every animal, this was across the animal kingdom, has its own body weight, and um, you can only support yourself when you're on the ground, right? Um, so when you're on the ground, you need to produce enough force for yourself to be aerial for a while before you put your next foot on the ground. And basically, the faster you run, the less time you have on the ground, your contact time or your stance time is shorter. Um, and you have less time to generate that force, and you also need to generate a little more force because you're going to be in the air relatively longer. Um, so that concept basically across the animal kingdom, again, if you take into account different body weights of animals from small mice to horses, uh, including people, um, and you see how fast they run and 
how long they spend time on the ground, um, you can pretty easily or fairly well predict the energy cost it takes them to run. And then some follow-up studies on where people were wearing either weight fast or they were lifted up in an altergy or similar situation sort of confirmed that, that if you make people lighter, you reduce the force um, and the energy cost sort of changes proportionally. Whereas if you make them heavier, you need more force, the energy cost changes proportionally roughly to that again. So basically, the, the major uh, determinant of energy cost of running is how much force you need to support your body weight, which is, and how much time you have to do that. Um, so if you want to change that for level running, and you can use that with shoes, it's not going to change the force, but if you have a resilient foam, maybe you can have a slightly longer contact time. Um, but then again, it, it's not as easy. We couldn't explain the findings just on that concept either. Um, but then when you think about uphill running and steep uphill running, um, you need to actively produce a lot of work to, to move your center of gravity up the hill, right? Um, and if you go steep enough, it gets a lot more like cycling where you don't need to support your body weight because you're sitting on your butt on your saddle and your legs are on your pedals, right? So in cycling, it's all about pushing the pedals around to produce work to carry yourself and the bike uphill. Um, for steep enough running, that becomes dominant too. You're, you push down, uh, push on the ground hard enough to get yourself up the hill and um, the amount of energy related to just supporting your body weight, it gets relatively smaller and smaller. So I, I did my master's thesis on this and sort of combined the two models and sort of for everything in between, which is not super steep uphill, just work to go up versus level just bouncing around, I sort of merged, was able to merge the two models um, where we say like, well, if you go slightly uphill, you need a little bit of both. Um, and um, we sort of integrated that and we, and we got it to work and also in a way that the efficiency at which you do that vertical work, um, which historically has been found to be way higher than physiologically possible. With the way that we merged the models, we found numbers that were actually a lot more realistic, around 25% of muscle efficiency. And do you think this can explain a little bit, uh, I think maybe sympathetically between you and I, we're probably comparatively better at running on level ground despite our best efforts to get into the trails. Do you think any of that can help explain individual variability as to why some people are just incredible mountain goats going up the mountain versus people that are really good on the roads? Is it just training or is there an inherent physiological variability that maybe ties into this cost of generating force hypothesis? I do, I do think that, that that can explain that. And, and um, part of that could be changed through training. I guess if you and I would just do enough treadmill climbing all the time around and stop running on the level, we probably get better at that. And we might see physiological changes in muscle fiber lengths uh, or efficiencies of shortening. Um, so again, I think um, for level running, probably what you and I have for us is that we have pretty good tuned um, tendon muscle system where we can just generate the forces, cost of generating force by the tendons have us bounce around. If anybody has seen Dan running, uh, <laughs> they will confirm that. Um, 
And uh, versus uphill, um, again, if you go steep enough, you're you're not bouncing, so you're not benefiting much from elastic energy storage in tendons. And it's really about efficiently producing force and power, uh, and that is physiologically different. And um, again, that could probably be improved by training. Um, but yeah, again, that's also how I feel sometimes not too bad about not being that good in climbing. Um. <laughs> yeah, I've always thought maybe it's it's something about the force velocity, force length relationships. And, you know, we had a, another colleague that uh, Valter and I both worked with at Sea Boulder, Jackson Brill, who's a great trail runner. He and I were running trails one time and he just kept berating me over the ideas that there's no way that I should be beating you on the trails with our road PRs. And I said, Jackson, there's definitely a way. And I think it's a, we got into this exact conversation, right? You know, you're better at these shorter muscle lengths at, at climbing and power, not to mention the differences for downhill, which are obviously uh, very, it's almost a different sport. Yeah. Um, kind of, you know, just before we start to wrap up, I'd love to hear, you talked about it a very little bit in the beginning, some of the bridges of these, you know, very high end, like you're making some of the fastest people faster, although go to any trail or any race and you're going to see super shoes really across the whole gamut. Can you talk about some of the ideas you've taken and, and you bridge them into these other topics in your other research? Because I just think those, uh, bridges are really fascinating. Yes. So, um, there's a couple of different people doing similar things. And I think one of the easier, earlier conceptions which i'm not personally working on at this point is sort of taking this carbon fiber plane or this geometry to gate and either help older populations um, which might be tricky because if you don't implement the plate well you might need more calf muscle forces and that's probably most often the problem in aging populations uh, but even thinking about these things could could help find other interventions that might help them or find training interventions. One of the things that we actively are doing is um, mainly looking into uh, individuals with gait asymmetries. So uh, people post-stroke, hemiparesis, they walk with asymmetric step lengths. And, um, and we, um, for, I mean, their system is asymmetric. So maybe asymmetric is the most efficient solution for them at that point. But for long-term symmetric bone health, that, that's not a good thing. We should often see that those people uh, develop asymmetrical uh, knee osteoporosis or osteoarthritis and things like that, right? You, For your joints, it's always best to walk symmetric to load them the same. Um, so, so some of the work we're doing there is, again, trying to utilize footwear to, uh, and in that case, asymmetric footwear. So we, we just recently, like yesterday or something, published a study on asymmetric uh, midsole stiffness um, and see how that affects uh, how much force people put on each leg and actually uh, not too much. Uh, so that was sort of showing that it's not as simple as just giving people uh, an EVA shoe on the left side and a PIVA shoe on the right. Um, so we're taking that to a next level where we're now working some sort of a robotic shoe is what we call it, but it basically involves an actuator where we can adjust the midsole stiffness. And again, we're going now very tall, talking about 50 to 80 millimeters, which again here the running helps because we can learn from the runners that if you practice enough, you can run with a 60 millimeter shoe and they're not allowed for races, but people train in them or even do races without uh, telling. Um, 
so so then again like okay if we have this much room now we can build something into shoes of older adults or uh, people post stroke and we can modify how their food interacts with the ground and we could either help them on their weak side or for training purposes we can even make it harder on the weak side which sort of triggers their body to then work harder on their weak side and if they learn to work harder on the weak side if we then take away the weird shoes and put them in normal shoes <laughs> uh, if they still work harder on the weak side we have achieved that um, they became more symmetric now. So those are some of the things that we're, we're trying to do with the footwear uh, and it has a very clear crossover from the footwear stuff that we're doing. Um, and then the other part is more related to uh, older adult fall risks and there the crossover is less direct, but still we're using similar measurements like we can measure people out running on the trails um, and if we can find out a way how to do that best and leverage some industry money to do that we can then also apply that to older individuals who walk around the shopping mall um, and see how their gait uh, is when they do that rather than just ask everybody to come into the lab run on their trip walk or run on the treadmill which again is is a nice way to control things but it's not necessarily what happens in the in the in the wild yeah. Yeah. And obviously our lab's super interested. We, we do a lot of work in the wild. And so I think that ecological validity has a lot of value, even when you sacrifice some of the controls. And the one point that you touched on, I think is interesting. I have heard a number of running shop owners talking about the number of older adults that come in because a doctor has prescribed for them uh, carbon fiber inserts, for example. I do feel a little bit like at this point, it's kind of like you said, it's no free lunch. And so especially for some people, if they don't have the calf strength, it can actually maybe not be the, it's not doing what I think the doctor thinks it's doing. So I think this research is really needed because I think it's used right now. The same insert that um, is being used to run 159 in the marathon, it's probably not going to be tuned correctly for somebody that's you know trying to walk you know to your point down, down the sidewalk. This has been super fun. Walter, any, any last comments before we wrap up? No, I think that was a very excellent point. And again, we, we didn't have time to go into all the nitty-gritty details, but I think that's the, the biggest problem, that there's a lot of people who just read the headlines and think they understand it and start making claims and even prescribe things. Um, and I think, yeah, if you really want to understand these things, you have to look into the details. And again, there's so many studies out there that use the carbon fiber insole. And then they say like, well, this is why the 4% shoe is 4% better. Like, no, you did something totally different. It's not even the same shoe. And again, with the current state, um, with so many different brands that all have their models, even brands that have multiple carbon fiber plated models, um, the one shoe is different from the other and and you you, you just can't assume that it, that the effects will be the same across them and that if you don't study it you might not fully understand it and you might apply it in the wrong way so um yeah we we need to do more research but also to, to pay attention to the details of those studies yeah kind of communicate better because the headlines that are often easiest for people to consume are generally leaving maybe some of that nuance out yeah well, thank you so much, Valter. It has been another episode of the Science of Performance podcast. It's been super fun. Thanks. You're welcome. I had a good time. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Science of Performance podcast. It's been a blast talking about these topics, and I hope you have some questions as well. 
I'm going to do a final episode after all seven episodes air, where I'm going to answer any outstanding listener questions. So please feel free to drop those in an email to research at boatechnology.com. Or if you're a free trail member, you can put this in the forum. Thank you. (laughs) 